Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. We're in the middle of a series called Who's Your One? It's been a series about evangelism, a series about the need to share the greatest message that's ever been told in all of human history with your friends, your loved ones, your co-workers, your family, uh, all of those people whose souls are precious to you, which really at, at the end of the day should be every soul on planet earth, but all of us have people that we are particularly close to, people that we know really well, and people who are far from God. And so we've been stressing the need for sharing that message. We've been training each other in our small groups about simple and profound ways to share that message. So we're continuing that series this morning with the passage that Pastor Nelson read to us at the outset of our time together, and we begin this morning with with a difficult subject. Sometimes churches get tagged with being all hell, fire, and brimstone. You ever heard that? Uh, I was looking back over the, the course of the time that I've been honored to serve as your pastor, and it occurred to me that beginning in February, I will begin my fifth year as your pastor. Time flies, doesn't it? I guess it depends. If you don't like me, then it's been excruciating, maybe. But it's, uh, it's been one of, those, one of those times. I'll begin my fifth year. I have never once until today spoken about the subject that we're going to talk about today. And some of this is because it's awkward. We're talking about how to personally share this message with people who are yet to trust Christ. And, and this subject, the subject of hell, it's awkward, isn't it? In fact, if you want to know the fastest way to take a really good conversation and turn it into an awkward silence, mention that you believe, particularly when you're having a conversation with the wider culture, that there is a separation between all of humanity and God, the only prescription for which is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And furthermore, mention your belief that those who reject that message will spend eternity in hell. And I can guarantee you Either you will end the conversation or they'll find a way to politely exclude you from it because it's awkward and it's hard to believe in certain points. It's hard. And yet Jesus himself taught us that there's a hell. There's a group of folks that are out in wider culture now. They call themselves Red Letter Christians. They publish a magazine called Sojourners. It's a a group of well-meaning people. Many of them, I believe, are my brothers and sisters in Christ. They say some helpful things. But one of the things that, is, that they've done that's actually been detrimental to the Western church is they have segregated the red letters in your Bible from the rest of the letters in your Bible. And one of the reasons they do that is because there's admittedly some uncomfortable things in Scripture. And so if I can ignore or somehow minimize the words that are not directly ascribed to Jesus, if I can somehow segregate Jesus from Paul or segregate Jesus from the prophets, then I won't have to talk about those issues. Sister Deb talked about one of those issues with you last week, the issue of sexual ethics. 
marriage and family and those kinds of things. And what our red-letter Christian friends would say is, well, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to minimize that because, after all, Jesus never said that. And although it may occur other places in the Bible, it apparently wasn't a priority for Jesus. And so we're not going to talk about it. And I have to tell you, that is one of the more adolescent approaches to inspiration and interpretation that I've ever heard of in my entire life. But here's the thing. Even if it's true... When it comes to this awkward subject of hell, it will not work. Because brothers and sisters, the only time in Scripture that hell is ever mentioned in such vivid and graphic detail that we find it in the pages of Scripture here in Luke 16, it's written in red letters. The only time we see a thorough, comprehensive description, uh, hell described in vivid detail, it is Jesus telling the story. So that that should grab our attention. There actually was one other time after this moment. Jesus tells us in Matthew's gospel that there's coming a day when a great separation is going to take place. Look at Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In Luke's account, in chapter 16, we get the most thorough and graphic picture of hell that we will find anywhere in Scripture. And so today is... Some of you may walk out today going, wow, it's Christmas, Pastor. But we're going to unpack several things that Jesus teaches us about this horrible, horrible place. Because friends, it's real. You can go to another church across the county or another place somewhere else and have somebody else feed you a bunch of crap and never tell you the hard stuff and take your money and entertain you while you go to this place or you can hear about it. And you can warn others of it. Jesus said it's real. So we've got to unpack this. Five facts about hell. This won't be a highly sophisticated message. It's just going to be a message that expounds upon the truth of Scripture. Five facts about hell followed by seven things that you're going to find in hell that may surprise you, actually. So let's begin with the top five. Number one, hell is eternal. If you didn't get that before, let's look at Matthew 25, 46 again. He said, and these will go away into eternal punishment. And so there's an equivocation here using the word eternal. There's eternal life, there's eternal punishment. If you look in Romans 16, you'll see that word eternal ascribed to God. Now, everybody, when they see that word eternal and they see it ascribed to heaven, they like to think that means forever. When they look at God, they like to think, well, he's forever. But when it speaks of hell, we want to think, well, maybe that means something else. It's the same word. And it describes all three. At the end of the age, Scripture tells us there are two and only two groups of people. They're going to be divided from one another. One will go into eternal life the other into eternal punishment. And the equivocation is absolutely undeniable. Everybody, my friends, I mean everybody, is going to live forever somewhere. Everybody. In fact, there's no human being who's ever been born from the time of our father Adam up until the present and up until the time Jesus comes back that will not live forever in one of two places. This is what Scripture teaches us. And if you go to hell... If you go to hell, 10 million years from this moment, you will still be there and you will always be there. Hell is eternal. Number two, hell 
is a place of great pain. Verses 23 and 24 says of the rich man that in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. When I was a teenager, there was a series, just awful series of movies that came out. And I didn't have any business watching it, but I did because I was a 17-year-old knothead. It was called Faces of Death. Anybody remember that? Yeah, some of you are giggling. You, you, you fellow Gen Xers know what, what I'm talking about, right? I don't, why in the world would you subject yourself to something like that? I finally married a woman with good sense. And she said, I don't know why you watch that stuff. It, it was real-life dramas docudramas, if you will, before the term docudrama became popular, of people dying in absolutely horrifying ways. And I'm talking graphic, it was unrated, right? they spared nothing. Sometimes it was actual footage of first responder sites where someone had been dismembered by accident or someone had burned to death or something like that. I, don't, I know, why in the world would you watch something like that? But I, I was thinking back on that experience with a series of, of flicks that I had no, again, still kind of burned in my mind. I had no business watching that stuff. But I, when I think about that, I think about how sometimes people can get obsessed about the way they're going to die. I mean, if you had to choose how you were going to die, how would you die? You'd probably choose the same mode of death that I would choose for myself. I want to go to sleep one night at a time of my choosing and never wake up, All right? never feel pain. Because I'm, I'm normal, right? And so there's things, right? Everybody's got a fear, and usually that fear surrounds some mode of death. For me, it's, it's claustrophobia. It's why when I got to the airline counter Saturday night, and they had me in the middle seat, I mean, look at me. I'm a big old boy. You don't want me. You don't want to be on the aisle or the window if I'm in the middle. And I don't want to be in the middle for 14 hours. I panicked. Etihad Airlines, by the way, has excellent customer service. I flew 14 hours in the aisle on the bulkhead row. Can somebody say amen? Right? So, so there's, there's all that. I'm, I'm like, okay, I, I, but I, I fear. So you know what would, would absolutely make me insane? To be trapped and not be able to move. And, and for that to be the way that I would pass. Some people fear, they think about what, how awful it would be to burn to death or how awful it would be to drown or, or how awful it would be. And we think about how agonizing certain kinds of death would be. But here's the good news about physical death. No matter how excruciating it is, eventually it ends, doesn't it? Eventually your heart beats for the last time. You, you, you take in your last uh, suck of oxygen. You breathe out your last breath of carbon dioxide and then you're done. And whatever pain you experience in this life is terminated and it's over. Here's the bad news. If you're not ready for what comes on the other side, something that never ends comes next. And so the question is, what's it going to be? There's something far worse than the worst thing you could think of conceivably to die, and that is to be tormented in the, to the extent that you're never released by death or by annihilation of your soul. You are forever conscious and simultaneously forever tormented. A place where the pain never stops and where you beg as this man did for relief and it never comes. Hell is eternal. Hell is a place of great pain. Thirdly, hell is a place of sadness. 
Look at these two passages and we get some indication of this. Verse 16, verse 23 rather, and, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Three verses later in verse 26, Abraham reminds this man, besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed. As horrible as the thought is for, for spending all of eternity having no relief from torment and pain, there's a greater pain still. And that's the pain of knowing what you missed. Dante's Divine Comedy is a 14th century poem that describes a man's fictional and metaphorical trip to heaven through hell. So obviously, there's a lot of it that's make-believe, but that there's one section right in the middle of a, a section in that, that poem called Inferno, where he describes a sign above the door. Anybody remember what it said? Abandon hope, all who enter here. Now, there's not a person in front of me right now who's not experienced sometimes a sadness, some depression, anxiety. But in this life, you know, it's one of the great things about this life is that no matter what you're going through, there really is always hope, isn't there? There's always the perspective that there's somebody worse off than you. There's always the perspective that things can, and, and most of the time they will, if you'll just be patient and do the right thing, that, that they'll get better. There's always other le legitimate ways that you can work on not being sad. But in hell, that sadness is both permanent and inescapable. There's nothing to look forward to. Once you enter this place, all hope is gone. And so hell is a place of intense sadness, in addition to being a place of excruciating pain for eternity. But fourthly, hell is a place of isolation. Look again at verse 26. Abraham says, and besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. You ever heard the phrase, I'll see you in hell? Maybe some of you have said it, maybe as a joke. I have a pastor friend who, before he came to know the Lord, used to think of hell, and he would laugh about it, and he would talk about how it's not really going to be so bad, and maybe I'm not going to be with Jesus, but all those people that serve him, they seem kind of boring anyway. That's fine. I'll be down in hell with all my drinking buddies. It'll be great. It'll be great. There's only one problem with that. There's nowhere in recorded scripture that describes hell as you or me if we go there being in the company of anyone. In fact, look at what this rich man asked for. He says, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. He doesn't just, hey, yeah, but have my brothers come down here. We'll build a campfire. We'll do oh, well. He says, I've got five brothers. I don't want to come here. Warn them, lest they may also come into this place of torment. You notice this man, he's not looking for company down here. He is desperate to warn those closest to him, my fate is already sealed, but there is still time for you. Do not come here. Hell is a place of isolation. Isolation. Fifthly, hell is a place of separation. Scripture tells us the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also, it's almost in the parable here, it's like they happen simultaneously. The rich man died and was buried 
And in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. And the contrast here is frightening. Lazarus is a, a poor man. We've already seen him described. In fact, all of this is, is preceded by Jesus' description of who really belongs to me, who really are the sheep, who really are the goats. And if you read that passage, it, it fits in very nicely with the eight weeks we did on justice. God's people, those who belong to him, are concerned with the marginalized and those that everyone else has forgotten about. And here you have one of those marginalized, this man named Lazarus, who's been forgotten. He may have not even gotten a proper burial. Lord only knows how long his body laid there before somebody smelled something and finally found him. We don't know. But the likelihood, given his social status, is that he wasn't even given a proper burial. And nevertheless, when he crosses over to the other side, he is carried by angels to Abraham's side. Some of you may have a translation that says Abraham's bosom. There's been gallons of ink spilled by scholars trying to argue with each other about what exactly that means. But here's, here's what we do know about this, this experience of being at Abraham's side. We know there was close fellowship beginning at the moment of his death. You know, the, the Bible said so this is the great news about people who know Jesus. It tells us that precious in the sight of God is the death of his. The death of those who belong to him, it's, it's, it's carefully watched over. Did you know there's never been a single soul on this planet who really belonged to Jesus who ever died alone? Never. Some of you may have loved ones that you didn't, maybe you didn't get there in time and there's been some guilt, look, lay off. They've had, they had far better company than you, far better. Because scripture tells us that's what happens. We get carried, but look at the contrast here with, with this rich man. He opens his eyes. He's not carried anywhere. He merely opens his eyes, and he is alone. And the most horrifying thing about hell is not that you are, are separated from other people, but that you are separated from the love and the mercy of God. You will never again feel the love and the mercy of God. So people in front of me. That's your future. If you do not repent and put your faith and your trust in Jesus. I spent four days in Abu Dhabi last week with people from all over the world, fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, along with Muslim friends and Jewish friends and some atheists and agnostic, conservative, liberal, every party you can think of politically in America and all around the world. And it was funny when I would post pictures or say something or request prayer. Occasionally, I would get somebody to say something like, yeah, give them the truth, pastor. Give them the truth. Those people need to hear that. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. This Sunday morning, my more imminent concern are the people in front of me right now. Some of you need to hear this. Some of you need to know that there's a hell and there are people who call themselves Christian who are going to blow the bottom out of it if they do not genuinely know Jesus. And you will never, ever experience the love and the mercy of God. You will experience what you deserve as a sinner, which is his eternal judgment on your soul. And it will never, ever end. A hundred million years from now, you will remember this moment. You say, well, I, I'm a, Pastor, I can't believe you're saying that. I'm, I'm a good guy. I believe it. I believe it. I believe I'm, I'm talking to all good people, no doubt. 
Some of you have been listening to one too many Luke Bryan songs. That's not how it works. I have the honor and the privilege of chaplaining at the local fire department here. Those men and women are heroes in my book. I love them for what they do. I love them for the work they put in. But I have told several of them on moments, hey, listen, I love you. You're my heroes. I don't want you to think that I think any less of you. But I also want you to hear me clearly. Saving lives and putting out fires does not make you right with God. That's not how it works. Some of you are war veterans. I thank God for you putting your life on the line so that unlike so many of those countries that were represented last week, I can stand up and do what I do and not be persecuted by my own government. I thank God that you have fought for our freedom, but laying your life down even for this country does not make you right with God. There are some war veterans that are going to go to hell. That doesn't sound very American. Well, how about this? Thomas Jefferson has been in hell for over 200 years. Writing the Declaration of Independence does not make you right with God. One thing makes you right with God. Repentance from your sin, which has separated you from him in the first place. Is that great theologian Jonathan Edwards said? You do nothing to earn your, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You turn away from that, you put your faith and your trust in someone who absorbed that sin and took that punishment on your behalf. And you give him everything. That's how it works. That's how it works. Because there are good people. There are good people in hell. Here's something else. Good vision is in hell. Did you know that? Being in torment, this man lifted up his eyes and he could see. What does he see? Scripture tells us he sees Lazarus. What do you think that means? It means he sees what he has missed. And he will see it for all of eternity. Good people are in hell. Good vision is in hell. Good prayers are in hell. You hear what this man is saying? You hear his plea? And he's not just asking for mercy for himself, as any normal person would in that kind of excruciating environment, but also for his brothers. We think about that for a moment. We've been encouraging our small groups uh, for the last six weeks. We, you need to develop a list of people. You need to pray for those people by name. You need to share the message of Jesus with those people using the three circles that we've given you or using whatever tool. Just use something. Tell somebody about Jesus. There's a man in hell that had five people on his prayer list. Five more than a lot of Christians that are still alive right now. Let's not be, brothers and sisters, less concerned about people going to that place than people who are already there. There's good prayers in hell. I wonder what this man's life and death would have been like if his prayer life had been in his life what it was apparently in his death. Here's the fourth thing. There's good memory in hell. Verse 25, Abraham says, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in manner, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. Here's what you will have in hell. Consciousness, memory, awareness. What, what will you remember? Listen carefully to these words from Proverbs 29.1. He who is often reproved 
yet stiffens his neck. You, know, you keep hearing the truth, you keep hearing the truth, and you keep saying, nope, 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 nope. Will suddenly be broken beyond healing. You know there's degrees of punishment in hell? Jesus says it'll actually be worse for some people than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. There's degrees of punishment there. Now, you, you riddle me this. Let's take someone from another world religion that I may have met last week in Abu Dhabi and talk with them about the gospel of Jesus. And they never hear it again. And they decide, make a conscious decision to stay where they are, to continue believing what they believe. And they go out of this world and then the next. And let's contrast that with somebody that's in front of me right now who week after week after week, every year of your life, you hear the truth of the gospel and you stiffen and you stiffen and you stiffen. Which punishment do you think is going to be worse? This is why I'm telling you my more imminent concern is for people in my own country, people in my own town, people in my own church. If you stiffen your neck, what's the result? Will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Look at those last three words. Pay attention. Let them scare the hell out of you. Broken beyond healing. See, my fear is that some of you are listening right now and today will be just one more day that you're going to stiffen your neck. And there is coming a day in this life, this life, where the Holy Spirit is going to push against you one last time. And you're going to reject it for the last time. And you may live another year. You may, you may live another 40 years. You are a walking dead man because he will never come knocking again. There's coming a day. So when he, there's this, there's this old hymn that says, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others you are calling, do not pass me by. We forget that Scripture actually teaches that God's not obligated to convict you of your sin. And that there's coming a time in every man's life and every woman's life when he's going to knock for the last time. And then that's going to be it. That's going to be it. No matter how long you live, you're dead. You're separated. You are damned. And there will be good memory in hell. A million years from this moment, you're going to remember that time when it was. There's good memory in hell. Here's something else. There's really good theology in hell really good theology you've heard that old saying there's no atheists in hell well that's true there's nobody in hell who doesn't believe every right thing that they should believe about God about humanity about Jesus about everything else some of you here right now you're like well I've read some of those red letter Christians and I just I just don't believe it friend your belief is irrelevant one day your feeble opinion is going to collide with reality and reality will obliterate your opinion get off of this postmodern nihilistic nonsense that I can create my own reality or you're going to run into reality one day and in hell everything gets straightened out everything becomes clear 
Look at what Paul tells us in, in Philippians chapter 2 in this great Christological hymn. He goes, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, where? In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is not your girlfriend. He is not to be trifled with. And one day, he will be confessed rightly as Lord by everybody. Satan, all of his minions, everyone in hell, everyone above the ground, everyone in heaven. There's not a single soul that will not one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The question is not whether you will ever get things right and see things as God has wanted you to see them. The question is not whether you will one day confess Jesus is Lord. My friend, that is a foregone conclusion. The question is, will you do it willingly now while there is still opportunity for mercy and grace? Or are you going to wait for that moment when that confession will do you no eternal good? There is good theology in hell. Number five, there are good priorities in hell. Good priorities. Look at, starting at verse 27, and he said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Good priorities. There's not one person in hell right now who does not wish someone would be sent to tell their families and their loved ones right here about Jesus. But look at the response. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let him hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, we need a miracle, right? We need something spectacular. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. This is an interesting way for, for Jesus to end the parable. One who will quite literally rise from the dead, and yet there were those who witnessed that who will not hear. And will not believe. If you had a family member die, and Jesus released them to come back and warn you of this horrible place, Scripture tells us there is no more likelihood that you would believe that dead relative. So stay off of German Street with all the mediums and crap. You're just playing with demons anyway. What are you thinking? If you happen to run into one of those people, you're not going to believe what they tell you any more than you believe what I tell you. Because what imparts truth to the soul is not the medium, it's the message. It, it is the Word of God. Augustine called it a pharmacon, where we get our word pharmacology from it. You know, I can, I've got some drugs that I've been taking recently under a doctor's care, and they're helping me. They're doing some things they should be doing. But if I suddenly chug the whole bottle, y'all, somebody might find me somewhere. Right? That, that's the, the power of a pharmacon. It can bring life. It can also bring death. That's the power of the gospel. But there are good priorities in hell. Here's another challenge we get from this part of the text. Let, let's not let, again, let's not let people in hell be more concerned than we are about people who are separated from God. 
Let's not be so ambivalent, so complacent about this. Finally, good intentions are in hell. 27 years of preaching the gospel, I can count on one hand the number of people that I've talked with about Jesus who have cussed at me or thrown me out of their house or just didn't want anything to do with me. I'm talking about people who believe things that I didn't believe and who I believe things they didn't believe. I mean, they, hate every, they hated everything I stood for. I, I count on one hand, less than the five fingers, the number of people that have done that. Most often, the issue is apathy, procrastination. I get around to it eventually. That, that same problem apparently was a problem so many people had in Corinth. That's why Paul said the following. Behold, now is the favorable time. Remember Proverbs 29? He who stiffens his neck after being much reproved will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Now is the favorable time. Today, now is the day of salvation. Listen to me, my friends. Hell is full of people who never intended to go there. They never intended to go there. They had good intentions. Some of you are husbands, and you're sitting here right now next to a wife who has cried her eyes out, spent time on her knees, lost sleep at night, paced the floor back and forth, caring about your soul, and you're just now coming to that realization, wow, yeah, that really was all about me. Now is the accepted time for you to look at that woman and say, sweetie, would you walk forward with me so I can believe in Jesus? Some of you are teens right now. And you're doing what I did as a not-headed teenager. And you need to come to the understanding that this Jesus is not your prom date. He is not to be trifled with. He is Lord over all, or he is not Lord at all. And it is time to give your life to him. And you've got moms and dads and grandparents that have poured their heart out because of your soul. Because they love you and they want the greatest thing for you, which is eternal life. Better than anything you can have on this planet. There's some moms and dads in this room right now. Your kids see the double life that you live when you're not in front of your pastor and you're not in the middle of this church. They see it. And they won't call it out because they're trying to honor the father and the mother. But by their bedside every night, they're going, Father, Lord, Jesus, would you please save my daddy? Would you please save my mama? I know something's not right. I see them saying one thing on Sunday and acting a completely different way during the week. I can see it. How many people in front of me right now, a million years from now, are going to be in that awful, awful place? You don't have to be there. Scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus came in much the same way as, as our musicians played and sang so beautifully a little while ago and that he took human flesh upon himself, that he lived among our mess and he did something that none of the rest of us have ever been able to do, that he lived in absolute perfection. And then he did something voluntary. He took our punishment, the judgment of God that was due to you, that was due to me, and he died as our substitute absorbing the wrath of God that should have been ours. And then he rose from the dead so that because he lives, you can live also. And the scriptures say this horrible place is not a place that God intends for you to go. 
this horrible place is there because God is God and God is just and God is holy and God is not to be trifled with and God will damn sin one way or the other. But his great love for all of humanity means that he has already punished it in the person and the work of Jesus. Hear me well, you don't have to go to hell. But you have to give Jesus everything or you will go to hell. This is what the scriptures teach us. Now, why this in the middle of, of a series called Who's Your One? Why? Why do we do this? I think sometimes we really forget some of these things that are just awful that we learn about in the scriptures. And when we forget those things, we forget what we're here for. I've told the story uh, several years ago, but I, I think it, it bears repeating. It's a true story about a group called the New England Humane Society. You know, today when you hear the word humane society, you typically think of saving animals. The New England Humane Society was not chartered for that reason, though. It began on the New England coast a couple of hundred years ago as a result of seeing a lot of ships go down literally just yards from the Atlantic shoreline. Lack of navigational technology and a number of other things combined with just sudden harsh weather that is, any of you that are from New England know how that, that coastline can be. Rocky shores. You'd have a ship full of people that would just crash into rocks and those people would go down and they would die. And these, these New Englanders just could not stand to think that that was happening to souls created in the image of God. And so they formed the New England Humane Society and they built these little huts. Uh, occasionally, if you're along the New England coastline, you can still see a few of them. There are not that many left. They were called huts of refuge, these little dome huts. And they would put life-saving equipment, at least what was available in the 18th century, in those huts. And then they would take turns. Nobody got paid for this. They would volunteer their time. They would sit outside the hut with their eyes firmly on the coastline, taking multiple hour shifts, waiting, watching, looking to see if there's someone who might be going down. And the moment they saw trouble, without thought for their own life, they would go into that hut, grab whatever equipment they thought they needed, dive into the Atlantic Ocean at the risk of their own life in order to save another soul that they'd never met. And they had a recruiting motto in the late 18th, early 19th century. This is how they got people on board. You're going to love this. This will move you. You ready? They would look at each other and say, you have to go out. You don't have to come back. But it rallied New England. Now, over time, there was a government entity that would eventually emerge to become the United States Coast Guard. And for the longest time, the Humane Society and the Coast Guard, they worked together, saving lives. And eventually, the Humane Society said, look, the professionals have got this. We, we, we don't really need to be involved in this anymore. In many ways, we feel like we're getting in the way. And so they, they stepped back from the life-saving business. Now, here's the thing. See, if you see the church anywhere in this parable, this very true parable, they couldn't bring themselves to disband. So if you go to Boston in the fall, you can still find the annual gathering of the New England Humane Society. You can wear a tux. You can pay way too much for rubber chicken. You can watch them give out civic awards and glad hand each other. But it's been an awfully long time since anybody in that organization looked at someone else in that organization 
with intensity and said, you have to go out. You don't have to come back. This is what we're missing, brothers and sisters. What about us? Some of you are like, man, Pastor, thank you for preaching this morning, but I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm saved. Yeah, yeah. But hell is still real, and people are still going there. People are still dying. We sing a song here. It's one we're going to sing here in just a moment. And one line in that song says this. Speaking to Jesus. If you gave your life to love them, so will I. Is that the cry of our hearts? May it be so. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard truth. And yet, Lord, you tell us these things because you love us. And so, Father, may we feel that sense of love. May there any individual here does not yet know you or perhaps thought they knew you. And at this moment, you're pressing against their soul. Father, I just pray, Holy Spirit, may they feel your loving embrace. May they sense your great desire for them to not be condemned. May they see in history a moment that demonstrated greater love than they have ever or will ever experience in this lifetime. Something that happened on their behalf 2,000 years ago. Lord Jesus, when you gave your life for our sins, and may they come to know you this morning, may they not stiffen their necks and find themselves one day, tens of thousands of years from this moment, regretting that moment in anguish. May they believe. May they receive. Father, for those of us who already know you, may you light a fire of passion in us that will catapult us beyond this season of Advent and into 2020 and beyond. And may this world, starting with this tri-state area, know of Jesus because of these people and their passion and their belief in everything that you have told us in your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.